Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Conley and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to today's event. Um, I'm delighted to have the chance today to talk to Simeon Brown. Simeon is a reporter and journalist at Channel 4 and has written for a range of publications including Vice, Guardian, The Huffington Post and The New Statesman. Um, his expertise in online culture and digital capitalism has influenced this excellent new book, which is called Get Rich or Lie Train and Deceit in, in, Ambition and Deceit in the Inf- New Influencer Economy. Um, so it's a really exciting piece of work that explores the appeal and also the harsh realities of using social media to make money. Simeon's investigation exposes the fraud, exploitation, bribery and deceit that often lies behind this kind of mirage of opportunity in the online world. Um, so, Simeon, um, welcome and thank you for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to talking through some of the ideas in the book. Um, and before we get started, I just wanted to encourage everyone to get involved and join the conversation on Twitter. So if you do, you can use the hashtag, hashtag influencer economy. Just to get started, one of the things your book really hinges on is the idea that becoming an influencer is kind of like this new dream right now for a lot of young people, and people in their early 20s. And for many people, this aim to, so many young people aim to achieve success in this area. So I just want to kind of begin by exploring some of the factors that you go into in your book, which have kind of brought about this like new moment. Um, so you highlight some causes like the financial crash in 2008 and the growing pressure on young people to succeed and be seen as like a winner, which you kind of go into a lot. And um, the disenchantment with the university degree as like a tool for social mobility, particularly for people who kind of face structural barriers like racism, which make them less likely to find higher earning graduate jobs, no matter how good their academic profile is. So can you kind of talk about like how these different factors have coalesced to make the Internet this very like attractive new place to find success? Yeah, I mean, I guess the archetypal idea of an influencer for most people is this kind of the person who you imagine has a lot of followers on Instagram, you know, your Love Island celebrity, your blue chip YouTuber. But for me, the idea of an influencer was really about looking at what is digital work in this day and age um, mm-hmm. and why it is that, you know, fundamentally, not even that why it is, we know that fundamentally the internet and technology has been a huge, I guess, gold rush for investors in terms of investing into platforms and obviously in terms of being the primary site of human culture where people uh, meet, meet 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 their partners on apps or where they where they meet their friends you know it, it's a huge part of society but it was about the, what is the nature of this digital work especially as the internet and social media especially is expressed as a place where anyone can make it it's meritocratic grow your business grow your following you become a brand and the kind of hustle culture at the heart of it but also the fundamental ideological foundations of this form of work um, and how it is uh, certainly the expression of the laissez-faire individualism, the atomization of work, and how actually, rather than being this new frontier of entrepreneurialism, is actually ripe with a lot of the kind of exploitation that is defined, you know, you know, 20th century work and 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 you know we've seen the regalvanization of pyramid schemes and things of that nature because of how mm-hmm. I would say the grammar of social media in many ways speaks to that logic as well. So the the work the book was really trying to unpick this idea of okay, can anyone make it? And the way that you can really learn around about this economy is by not focusing so much on the winners, you know, your Molly Mays or whatever, but looking mm-hmm. at the, the aspirants and, and the losers. And they make up the majority of people who are engaging in 
influencer type work and so I'm interested in you know so-called um, micro influencers um, people who are engaging in content whether that's gaming whether that's so-called finance whether um, obviously there's uh, been a big focus on like only fans and sex work and how that's converged mm-hmm. influencer work okay. um, and so these are the kind of things that, that that I was primarily interested in but also unpicking the the actual values at the heart of this ecosystem and how it's mm-hmm. manifested in you know effectively this wild wild west which raises all kinds of uncomfortable questions I think um, and that was a real strength of your book is that a lot of the case studies you'd spoken to had been sort of like really really hopeful about the potential they had to kind of make it online when they had sort of seen themselves like shut out of other avenues and I think that was a, a really sort of a real strength of your book is that you kind of showed that hope and then the fact that it very often just does not kind of pan out in the way that they you would want it to or, or hope it would expect or expect it to. Um, I think something else at the just to say at the start is that you explore a range of different ways of making money online because it's not, I think sometimes the perception of an influencer can be that it's like, you know, specifically young women and fast fashion influencers, but you kind of go into all of the different, well, a lot of the different avenues. Um, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of like different online communities and also the role played by different social media platforms, like how that comes into the different types of ways to be an influencer and make money? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the internet is so broad mm. and the different ways that effectively so many different industries and areas are pivoting to content and therefore pivoting towards influencerish behavior. Um, yeah. I think in my book, I think one of the maybe the areas that maybe people are least um, aware of or are unlikely to frame as being a primarily led influencer-based economy is like the area of kind of finance investors. I guess if you look at NFTs and crypto bros, that is primarily influencer an influencer industry, like primarily, not that's that's what it is in its purity. It's building hype around these kind of coins, pumping and dumping, creating, um, you know, stars at the heart of it, and that ultimately inflates the values of these things, so that it, you see a transfer of of of, of wealth from late adopters mm-hmm. to early adopters, and that's really how an influencer economies work. And I was looking at, you know, some of the young men who were drawn into some of these pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes. Um, who were trying to make it as, I guess, crypto traders or before that Forex traders and how actually they were buying into products in which the FCA had warned there was an 80% risk of loss against the consumer, which they were unaware of. They mm-hmm. lost thousands of pounds. Um, and what it is that they were hoping to do, which is ultimately just participate in capitalism and be a winner and the belief that they could be that. Um, reproducing, I guess, um, the example of that Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall, of Wall Street, or even mm-hmm. just, you know, your kind of, uh, your rapper, you're from the end or from the hood, who is so-called self-made. And people wanting to, obviously, they've seen a lot of the imagery and the sense that, you know, you have to be a success. And if you're not a success in this day and age, then that is a moral failing and something that yeah. has been internalized by a lot of working class people. Obviously, class is far more fragmented uh, now. That, um, mm-hmm. And so those barriers are not as clear-cut as they used to be but fundamentally the people in my book were people who you know you would say would arguably fit in that um in in that grouping in terms of their tradition in terms of their um family background in terms of what they need to do to survive and so looking at the kind of working class and, and strata of digital work and where it is that they end up because 
you know, I do uh, try to draw a parallel between, I guess, some of the what was taking what is taking place in the world of venture capital with this huge old Russian risk to invest and investors trying to embed the next Facebook and create a new unicorn and and yeah. really kind of uh, benefit from this moment, which is the boom that we saw, I guess, post 2010. Um, but fundamentally, you have a lot of other people from disenfranchised backgrounds who want to participate and they want to be a player and they want to be involved and they see and they and they're aware of the wealth but ultimately there are real barriers of entry into elite stratas even though they feel like they are flat and even though there may be greater porosity now in terms of social mobility barriers still exist and so what is it that they were then being pulled into to try and mimic that or to you know to to participate in, in capitalism and and i think for for me looking at uh, that arena of, I guess, crypto influencer, uh, trader influencer, finance influencer, who've become the faces of this kind of hustle culture. Um, for me, that, that is a great example of saying, okay, this is, this is what influencer culture is for these kinds of young men. And it's not just people who want a deal with Fashion Nova, although obviously that is a part yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. That is one very prominent ecosystem or PLT or whatever yeah I thought you did a really good job of doing sort of different different segments of how it impacts on young men and women and I thought you did a really good job of writing about young women in this context because it is it can be a little bit hard to write about it sympathetically and show the subjects in like their whole complex reality and and a lot of you know, a lot of the, the chapters in fast fashion are primarily about young women because that is sort of the, the, the main player in, in that type of ecosystem. But um I thought you did a really good job of kind of showing how exploitative that the fast fashion world is for everyone involved. Um, and some of the examples were really visceral, like the ways in which women were kind of contorting themselves to, you know, to make themselves successful or to fit into this image of what an influencer is supposed to be like so can you talk a bit about that because um that that chapter I found really really shocking even as a young woman who uses Instagram it was shocking to me yeah I mean I I find that a lot of the conversations around I guess the archetypal influencer you know taking selfies you know getting feeling into that a lot of it's always like oh these Dumb young women, they don't know that they, they, they got all these wrong idols and stuff like that. But actually, it's 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 more there is a there's a strong economic story there. Um, and there was a strong economic factors at play. Sometimes they're even invisible. So I guess I interviewed a lot of young women who I interviewed, for example, one young mother. She was 20 years old. She wanted to go back into education. She felt like the support wasn't quite there for, for her to do that. She'd done an apprentice, which was a super dubious apprenticeship anyway, where she was effectively being a cleaner. So it wasn't even one of these supposed apprenticeships that propelled you into a world of high pay and things of that nature. Um, and then she was like, well, you know, what, what I can see is a, as an avenue in which I can make money is by growing my social media following, um, looking a certain way will help me to achieve that. That could help me get a brand deal with Fashion Nova and that in, that in turn enables you to work in this, in this field. And then she basically came across a surgeon via another influencer who, unbeknown to her, was effectively an ambassador for a surgery in Turkey 
who uses like freelance surgeons and things of that nature a lot of these surgeries themselves they pay influencers but it's not declared so people get paid for surgery there are discounts all kinds of hidden referral costs if you sign people up to have surgery then you don't have to pay anything um or you get discounts and there are all these these kind of hidden motives why somebody promoting these companies to you that are completely unaware let alone the added incentive of you believing that you will meet the aesthetic that will help you to uh, grow grow via the algorithm and so then the irony of that is that the company that the that the person she that the influencer she found online was promoting they have been botching jobs a lot and the, the nature of it is that it is, it is a bit of a lottery because they're pop-up companies and so what, what exists is the instagram account and somebody effectively is then sourcing hospitals and sourcing surgeons to come and do yeah. these different bits of jobs um so it's not like you're just going to you're not gonna you're not gonna find consistency and so you know there was a huge lottery in the case of the mom that i was talking about she was happy with her surgery and she's grown her her social media exponentially she's making money on only fans and all kinds of things but then there were other people that i spoke to who were, were completely you know butchered and and um and you know they were damaged and the surgery what was botched and they were receiving now support in the NHS. And I think that entire world, um, the, the very gendered demands of that form of labor, you know, there are supposed to be kind of regulators looking at the way that surgeries and things like that are promoted. They're regularly bypassed. Um, and then the outcome a lot of the time is a proliferation of trends in beauty that suddenly seem to come out of nowhere but there's a whole mechanism by which that arrives so people have been mm. talking a lot last year about the brazilian butt lift the kind of kim kardashian shape yeah. and the bbl and the, what was happening there of that proliferation of that shape was a lot more than just oh kim kardashian got it people wanted to copy it was like okay there was a whole number of other social and economic drivers um, which i was trying to unpick in kind of a, a simple way that that also helped it to boom um, and I think I could do a maybe, maybe I write the comparison or maybe I explain it later on, but it was like the exp explosion of Uber. Uber's big yeah. explosion was via referral code. So I lend you £10, I lend you my code, I get £10, you get £10, and then everyone's got loads of credit, and then we travel around for free, and that helps it spread. That's an incentive that helps it to grow, and obviously it's worked. That, in many cases, is, is, is how the BBL shape was, was growing in many cases, in terms of the incentives that surgeons were offering people who came. So, yeah, it, it just speaks to what I felt was um, a lot of economic and cultural phenomena that was, that, that was taking place that speak to the various different bits of exploitation and smoke and mirrors that are taking place in that economy. And that's even before you get to the fact that the a lot of the companies, fast fashion companies, who I guess are powering and providing a lot of the, the cash for some of this work at, the, at the, the higher end, if you you know succeed and you grow your following and you get a deal with Fashion Over or PLT, those clothes themselves are made in a super exploitative ways. So, you know, you know, garment workers, wage theft is rife. Uh, a lot of the people producing the clothes are women. Um, uh, who escaping gender-based violence uh, certainly the woman that i spoke to in my book who was fleeing uh, i think guatemala um and you have this duality of, of which these companies a lot of the time run by men are booming and growing off of exploitation of women in their supply chain but also in the promotion of this clothes as well um because in many ways the entire, after getting people to feel they have to adapt themselves to get a deal with them they they then have to do 
reams of unpaid work buying the clothes to tag them in the clothes to get their attention and all manner of things and then you had these companies that are winning twice and it and it it really does raise questions as to this is how an economy is functioning i mean are we just are we just cool with this and <laughs> um, i thought that was actually something you did really well in terms of i think a lot of writing about millennials and worker exploitation kind of does the the side of the global north side you know the side of like well these young women are getting ripped off because they think they're being brand ambassadors but really they're you know they're they're having to invest so much money to get this position it's not really a good deal for them but I thought that was actually really good that you actually went into the side of the sweatshop and the garment workers too which both are types of exploitation and both kind of feed into each other but I thought you did a really good job of kind of like layering those diff very different scales of like exploitation together and just like showing how yeah this the system is so much you know it goes so much further down than than the, than most people here in the global north kind of see and interact with I thought that was really, really good um and I think um yeah um this kind of links to what we were saying in terms of the kind of like the the way that trends and 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 information spreads through social media but um I thought in the sort of like fast fashion chapter you did a really good job of showing how there's like a baked in incentive for influencers not to represent themselves honestly and um a lot of the women who you had sort of interviewed and had, had got plastic surgery where they had pages where they documented the aftermath and they were like so 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 positive about how it had gone even if that had not actually been the reality and I thought that was like a really good encapsulation of how it's like there's no incentive for anyone to be honest about what is yeah. going on or about yeah their, yeah yeah, I, um, I guess that me. that that was one of the things that had really driven me to write the book what is it that the platform's incentivizing and therefore how do we behave and then how does that behavior then escalate yeah. and then also I think the book is quite accessible uh, it's very very mass market um, it's not academic in the slightest and I think there were some parts maybe that in terms of the escalation I was more keen on looking at how some of these norms were then informing our politics and things of that nature and there are some hints here and there in the book and I look at it particularly from how I guess civil rights campaigners have pivoted to content and then what that's done to you know actual progressive politics and political yeah. campaigns but in terms of just like um, how the, our behavior online is literally changing human norms and that was something I would have liked to have probably developed a bit more maybe. I thought you actually did in terms of how that came across though just as a, as a reader it very much did come across I think it was very much a case of like you showing and not telling because you had all of these like parallel case studies with the Facebook of different people doing different things but it very much came through how like warped they had kind of become by orientating their lives around trying to like amass followers trying to get attention in the hope that that leads to some financial reward that came across across so strongly because it was like exactly the same story across everyone. I think that was um that, that kind of leads on to something I was going to talk about later. We, we talk about it now. Um, there was a real like uniformity in everyone you spoke to, which was and in in the book that you go into, it's you've got fast fast fashion people, traders, you've got like YouTubers who get famous for doing like pranks, but they all had this sort of like kind of evangelical hopefulness about the internet and the possibilities even if they were just clearly getting scammed. And it was like a really, really 
it was that tone was the same across everyone and I think that aspect of it was really came through really really strongly can you talk about that kind of that sense of just hope that never really comes to anything and it's warped and whatever yeah yeah I, I mean it's like right now it's like early in the early chapters I try and draw a parallel between growing up in an evangelical church which had I would say mm. been captured by prosperity gospel and it's, you know, I guess it was that childhood of being in a church and then there'll be some American pastor fly over giving some big speech about why you had to give money to him and yeah. <laughs> and the church and it had to be thousands even if you didn't earn that and all these kind of things um, yeah, and, the lang- <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the language of that it's because of that language why I'm so able to spot it when I see it in the yeah. various pyramid schemes motivational schemes hustle because it's like this is the same language even you're you even yeah. represent you even recommended the same books like rich yeah. dad poor dad and things of that nature and I guess it was this it was the way that you had this sentient laissez-faire individualism that was evangelical that is so prevalent at, at this moment especially amongst younger people and you know Molly May obviously said that we all have the same 24 hours you just have to work hard and these kind of things and there was a bit of kickback but the truth is, is that that is the dominant orthodoxy of this mm-hmm. era um I mean you, you know you don't have a generation born post-Thatcher post-Blair and regardless of some of the progressive language like you know we're very much a product of that consensus and it's been uh, it's entrenched in pop culture it's entrenched in our in our political speech and it's I think it's you know it's the, it's the view that has now come to become entrenched in the internet and platform capitalism and so for me it was like it was a big part of people just believing that this space could and it was meritocratic and anybody could do it anybody could make it yeah. um and although you know you know I I'm a believer that you know, you know if you, you you work I hope think you know, work can pay but there are so many other random things where you're born where you're born to um you know who all these random other factors that play a big part mm-hmm. um structural factors um and I think sometimes these are not given the same credit amongst uh, younger people now who feel like if they if they aren't a millionaire by age 25 then they're a failure um and they should have certain things and certainly doing some of the research and going to various clubhouse rooms and stuff like that especially amongst minorities like it was it was very very it's very very dominant that these that that there is no room for recognition that actually let's look at structural inequalities and then let's let's engage in imagination about you know, what kind of world do we want to create that imagination had been lost and I guess um you have uh, Mark Fisher talking about kind of capitalist realism right and it's like it's basically that um this is almost this is the only way possible therefore you're on your own hustle hard and, and that's it um yeah, yeah. and so this was a it was like the book is about influence culture but it's really about influence culture as proxy to this stage of capitalism yeah. and how influence culture actually is the expansion of that monetizing every single relationship that you have your the site of culture or meeting people or being social actually really being a site of work um so there's not been any escape from that and then you know the atomization that is taking place and therefore how easily exploitable that is um although i'm speaking speaking about it you like using jargon and kind of stuff but you know i'm trying to 
write that in a way that was just like you know let's just let's just go and see what's going on and talk to people and tell it in the form of stories just report what was happening and hoping that that was present we've spoken a bit about the kind of influencer activism stuff but um this one this mentions about that in more detail um because you had a really good chapter on that and obviously social media can be a really great place for raising awareness and sharing information and we've obviously seen that recently with fundraisers and stuff for Ukraine, which just wouldn't, if that, if this was 20 years ago, all of that stuff would take so much longer to come out. But then also you kind of did a really good explanation and demonstration of how a lot of this can be very cynical, people using the idea of themselves as an activist to kind of like brand build and it does sort of corrupt what they're talking about and it, it kind of misuses like the sort of political stuff. Um, do you think there's ever where do you think there's a way to kind of like ever separate those two things or do you just think it's like totally baked into social media that it will always be manipulated like that my my view is that I guess in the book in which I engaged with this argument it was called Black Lives Matter here's my cash app uh, I mean I could have you could have looked at so many different I could have looked at so many different kind of political um campaigns and types of political influences i could have looked at lay party all kind of things but um I, I was most interested in i guess black twitter and black lives matter due to this kind of scale of its influence um mm. and so the issue with i guess black social media platforms is that they're built to kind of turn things into kind of content and not only are they built to turn it into kind of content, but there is a very clear reward mechanism. And therefore there is a very clear incentive structure, which can appropriate and hijack progressive movements. So, I mean, even if you look at the structure, right, it, it, you know, it enables one voice at the helm, you have followers, um, it creates hierarchies, um, which can be counterproductive if you're trying to build like, a real social movement which is rooted on you know, trust and all manner of corporate corporation social media creates kind of celebrity and puts that at the helm of it and that creates cool kinds of incentives and so i was looking at how you know it's good that people can be angry about an issue that matters but what happens then when that that anger suddenly can be so rewarded and then it becomes a form of income and labor but which it, it it did in blm for a lot of people and then suddenly they were posting a tweet a fire tweet you know, a couple of thousand retweets about something that found, that made them angry, then they would very directly promote, promote, promote their cash app underneath it and say the tweet was Labour. Um, yeah. And I guess indirectly, similar things were happening with people who were not necessarily even well versed in the movement that they were talking about, accruing followers, making it a thing, making movements, everything now is called a movement, you know, PLT or whatever, or launch a brand of clothing and say, this is our movement. It's like, it's like, it's just like, it's just the appropriation of that kind of language and behavior. But with, yeah. with, with what I was seeing was like the use of liberation-based theory and equality, anti-racism being kind of bastardized and used by influencers, mm -hmm. not only to propel themselves, but in some cases, to misinform their followers who sometimes had an appetite to want to understand. And so I guess I looked at an influencer who had appropriated the idea of reparations mm -hmm. to be to effectively to generate an income and grievance against people who share personal issues with. Um, and I think um, ordinarily like a lot of 
people in this space are just, are just ordinary young people just trying to make trying to work out what they believe trying to just, just develop themselves but then this platform propels them into celebrity it becomes a form of labor and then, it, and then also what it does is that because of site like twitter is where you know the first draft of history is written and is a form of publishing um to mass audiences it enables i guess misinformation and misunderstanding and on important nuanced issues um, that can be detrimental to the public conversation. And so I think that the platforms are very limited in what, in what they afford. I mean, if you read Emma Dabbery's book about what it actually takes to do kind of, I guess, progressive-based politics, you know, it involves kind of coalition building, it involves negotiation, it involves speaking beyond the base. It doesn't involve just speaking or trying to appeal to the biases of your audiences because you know that's going to drive engagement. And I guess newspapers have always done that, appeal to the biases of their readers, depending on who they are. And so, you know, you can always see an issue and you know, okay, the Guardian's going to frame it this way, um, the Mail's going to frame it this way, and you can you already know how they're going to frame it based on their audiences, right? And that's what it's about. But then when you have that power in the hands of millions of people, that begins to escalate and it creates all kinds of incentives and games and things of that nature. And I guess I was concerned about that. And I, I guess I looked at it in the case of BLM, but literally, you know, it's, it's almost a story of our time. I mean, even, uh, you know, when we look at you know, the, the whole Trump, the Trump event, it has, it has, there's a similar trends in that. All the right activists, you know, they're just content makers, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, and it's like, um, I think, I think, you know, it's just a story of our age. But I guess in my, in my chapter, I was trying to critique an area that I think had kind of evaded to come scrutiny. And I felt like, mm, you know what, you could do a little scrutiny. So I'm going to put it. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's, that, that, that was, um, I think that's something that we talk about, that we're becoming increasingly aware about. And I think as, you know, this U Ukraine um, escalates, the role of influences and misinformation and, and I think that, you know, as I say, it's, it's very, very present. And, um, you know, what we were saying earlier about the motives of the people involved become morphed. I do think you really see that in the, you know, the people who kind of brand themselves as activists, but whether or not they actually do activist work is very questionable. I feel like once you put yourself in that corner, you don't really have an option, but to constantly be generating outrage to constantly, and you're almost like, you're almost less in control of the situation than it seems because once you're once you're one of those voices that's just like constant beef and constant drama that's what your whole persona depends on and it's like almost having you're almost at the whim of the the drama yeah. that you you yeah. know almost like the wave carries you yes it, and, it, and it's and it, and it, the thing is some people have been very overt in saying that this is this is labor and it's like it is when that becomes labor it's a it's problematic it creates problematic incentives but then obviously the other flip side of it is that actually it is work of which shareholders of these companies benefit tremendously yeah. um which is the other great inequality i guess in the book um the relationship between the so-called users slash influencers all of us media workers or whatever and the platforms themselves um and the power that they have and the money that they create um and so, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's, um, I mean, we know who has the ultimate influence at the end of the day, but there, but there are real questions over just like distribution of power, um, resources, let alone on just individual 
and community-based behaviour. Yeah, you did that really well with the, um, specifically about like YouTubers in particular, like the algorithm changes in quite a random way, quite arbitrarily, and then their livelihood is like totally tanked, depending on whether or not they can adapt themselves. And I think that was a really good demonstration of how even people who appear to like wield this online influence are really still not as influential as it appears. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You were quite good at sort of spotlighting the the kind of darkness of the the um, social media sort of ecosystem. And I think um, in towards the end of it, you kind of said there was a bit in, in the last like chapter, I think, where you said out of all of the people you've met and all the case studies, even the ones who are sort of making money doing what, whatever they were doing, um, you know, so whether that was like, they were they had some kind of monetized stream and it was actually kind of their income, but you did say like, you wouldn't really define any of them as winners. And I think, um, can you talk a bit more about what you meant in the context of that? Yeah, I guess the, the way the book is framed uh, slash marketed is like, um, you know, who are the winners and who are the losers of this influencer? economy um and fundamentally it's like the platforms the shareholders the venture mm-hmm. capitalists these are unprecedented these are without question the, the real bona fide winners obviously you have a few blue chip uh, youtubers and influencers and people are able to generate decent income as well who would say that they, they are winning too um but if you've had to you know compromise on integrity and values and truth and be exploited to get there it's like is 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 this is this success is this is this is this winning is, is this a is this a thriving economic life right um and so going back and so for me i wanted to close i guess the book one with a kind of nod to the fact that there were real winners here and that this is a story of both labor and capital um, and so, you know, when you begin to, to re- when you begin to frame it in that manner, it is very much clearly also a labor story. So, um, going back to OnlyFans, it's like OnlyFans, there's lots of platforms that follow the OnlyFans trajectory in which they've grown primarily using kind of sex workers or, you know, erotic based content, um, Tumblr is another example. Um, Instagram to a lesser extent as well um, and then when it comes to actually propel and grow um, especially if they're trying to you know raise investment and, and be shown to be um, I guess more mainstream the people that they used to grow they will easily like basically cut them off so yeah. with Tussle so with Tumblr a lot of people got kicked off the, got, got, got kicked off the site um, only fans, there was that shift and they kind of, they didn't quite have the heart to go through with it because they realized that it would be it was kind of suicidal. They kind of pulled back, but they, but they flirted with it. Um, Instagram has done similar based things as well. Um, and so it was like a lot of the framing of people who are on OnlyFans is like, you know, we are entrepreneurs. We are the new Elon Musk and, and you know, we're hustlers and we've got the power, but then it was like, actually, fundamentally, there is a powerlessness to this as well. Um, and it speaks to the wider kind of precarity and economic uncertainty that is facing, I guess, a post-financial um, middle class. And I, I say I use the middle class more so because I just think that real working class people have always face a lot of kind of precarity. 
um, I think there's an, there's an expansion of that for a kind of graduate class and grouping. Yeah, totally. Um, and um, let alone, you know, people who actually are work, working class and competing in digital work too. So I think um, it's, it's that then that raises a lot of questions around, okay, do we need more imagination than in terms of power? I mean, I remember covering, you know, Facebook's had, Facebook's obviously huge. If it has less kind of gender say quad today because younger people don't really, really use it like that. So we don't really, don't really check into Facebook, but it has, it has still a huge amount of pull, especially for like slightly older people. You know, yeah. it's, it's a massive platform, let alone the fact they own nearly everything else meta. Um, but it was like, um, I think there's like 8 million businesses that are reliant on Facebook in terms of to sell and to buy. And these are like ordinary entrepreneurs. And like when they tweak their algorithm or their adverts or their software, sometimes a lot of them just cut out and they just can't earn. Um, and so you look at the amount of power that they have and you look at the power that they have in the ecosystem, you're just like, you know, as Kanye said, you know, all one man, could all that man, one man have all that power. It's like, it's like, it begins to reframe the conversation. Like, okay, yeah. like this is a lot of power that they have. Um, and there's a significance to that. And you, and you don't necessarily notice it when things appear to be going well, but you kind of need to address it um, before there's like a real kind of crisis. Um, and so that, that I think is why I'm trying to close the book, looking at how we've all become entwined in this kind of digital labor yeah. in some capacity, especially if you're involved in media work, because that's, mm -hmm. that, that's what it's about. Um, and then, okay, you know, what does this what does this mean what what next who 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 is power and and what do we do with all this surplus yeah i think that um yeah just to come to your the end of your book and you kind of finished on we're all influencers now and the amount that everyone has to sort of like sell and brand themselves in that way i think that was like um yeah i think that was a really good sort of point to end on because it puts it back onto the reader even even if you're in in even if your interaction with the influencer world is minimal, I think the book is very, very interesting in that perspective in terms of how it's changed everyone's life. Um, but yeah, that, this has been so, so great to talk and um, it's been really, really interesting. I think that's all we've got time for today, but um, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And um, yeah, congratulations again on your book. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the question. Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, no, brilliant to speak. Um, so to those of you watching, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Um, I really, really recommend Simeon's book. It's so great, but um, Get Rich or Lie Trying, it's called. And um, if you'd like to dig deeper into the case studies and the issues and stuff that we've discussed today, it's obviously all in there. Um, viewers of RSA events can get 20% off the book when you shop at Foils using the code FOILSRSA20. Um, but this will be posted in the YouTube live chat, that code will. And um, yeah, thanks for joining today and hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.